My hope is in the Lord, who gave himself for me. Many of you listeners have heard of the Lord's Prayer. The opening lines of this prayer are some of the most recited words of the Bible. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Some of you may also be familiar with the prayer Jesus uttered in the Garden of Gethsemane in which Christ poured out his heart to God the Father concerning the horrific suffering he was about to endure. During those unbelievably intense moments, our Lord prayed to God his Father and asked, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. The cup to which Jesus was referring involved Christ taking upon himself the full penalty of God's just wrath against every one of our sins. Though Jesus shrunk in horror and revulsion at the thought of taking upon himself the sins of the world, his prayer continued with the famous words, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The Lord's Prayer and Christ's heart cry in the Garden of Gethsemane seem to be his two most cited prayers, but there is a longer and vitally significant supplication that Jesus offered in John chapter 17 that we will consider today. In our series on the messages that Jesus Christ himself preached, our Lord is having his final major conversation with his disciples before his betrayal, crucifixion, and death. This message started in the upper room where Jesus washed his disciples' feet, identified Judas as the betrayer, dismissed him, began the sacred ceremony we now call the Lord's Supper, and then began his final major teaching session with them before his arrest. In fact, much of this message was delivered while Jesus and his eleven loyal disciples were walking towards the Garden of Gethsemane. This message of Jesus, called the Upper Room Discourse, was one of Christ's longest recording sermons, consuming John chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Just as many preachers to this day close their sermons with a final appeal to God for their listeners, so Jesus closed his final message before his crucifixion with a prayer for his followers as well. Interestingly, Christ did not limit the scope of his followers to those who walked with him during his earthly ministry, but even prayed for those of you who have become his followers even to this day. Pastor Jones has entitled this message, Jesus Prays for His Own. I hope you'll listen, for if you are a true believer of Jesus, you can learn from this passage what Christ himself prayed for you. On holy ground, I guess we always are whenever we open your word, but in this particular uh, passage, Lord, we just uh, feel it more um, this morning as we're coming to it, because certainly this is the heart cry of our Savior for uh, for your glory, for uh, his glory as he'll go to the cross, for his physical disciples that he was ministering to at that time, as well as, Lord, to us down through the ages. And Father, I pray that we will catch the heart of our Savior and that you will help us, Lord, to, um, to draw near to you and to prioritize what he prioritizes, to, to, to let sink into our hearts and minds the reality of the truth of, the, um, of what Christ is praying about here. And so we ask for your uh, glory and help in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, the, um, I'll just remind you of the, what's been going on in this whole message. Jesus was teaching these things in chapter 13, be a servant, remember God's sovereignty, even though Judas was going to be, betray them and him, obviously, most of all, and love your fellow Christians as Christ loves you. Chapter 14, he gives them the hope of, of having four great promises there. God's part, they can, we can all be a part of God's work on earth. 
that actually will accomplish greater things than Jesus was doing in his earthly ministry. The eternal presence of the Holy Spirit will be given to us. We have the peace of Christ as well. Chapter 15, we get four major relationships that Jesus is, is teaching us how to handle. Our relationship with him, we need to abide in him. Your relationship with your brother or sister, love them as Christ loved you. Lost world, understand that the lost world is going to tend to hate the believer because they hate Christ. And the Holy Spirit um, is there to help us and guide us and to make us witnesses for Christ. Then last week we looked at three major warnings uh, on the issue of offenses. First one is the uh, facing opposition when you feel like you're all alone. And many of us have been through that. Another thing that tends to push people away is when we are going through times of severe trial. And the disciples were about to do that. Remember, Jesus is, a, is, is, a, is very concerned for his loyal followers. These are, these are godly people. And yet, he's concerned that they would be offended. And then human error is something that also can bring us a great offense. Now, as you look in chapter 17, let me just kind of point out an overall flow of it. In the first five verses, okay, there is one word that shows up, or a form of, of that same word, that shows up five different times. That'll give you a hint as to what's going on in the first five verses. Does anybody see a word that keeps showing up? Glorify or glory. Good. And so that's why we're, Jesus is praying in the first five verses for God's glory. That is wrapped up in His glory as well as the Father's glory because they both are, are God, obviously, including the Holy Spirit. Now, if you start with verse 6, you'll see a change. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Who are the men that, that God gave Jesus out of the world? His disciples. And so from, chapter, uh, from verse 6 right down to verse 19, okay, he's praying for his physical disciples. That's going to be our second area of prayer. And then the third one starts at verse 20. Notice what he says. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Now, who would that involve? That, yeah, the church down through history that involves you and I. And as only God could do, Jesus is actually seeing us and praying for all of us. So those are three different avenues of the prayer. The glory of God, his, his disciples uh, that he was ministering at, at that point, and then believers down through the ages. And that's where we're going this morning. So I want you to notice, first of all, as Jesus prays for God's glory, that God is going to be glorified through something. All right, verse uh, 1, These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, So all that's happened from 13 to, to 16 is, is like his, his message, and this is almost like his closing prayer. But it's not just a, any closing prayer. It's, it's a prayer for the church at large and for those specific things. He lifted up his eyes and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. Okay, now he made a statement there, and, and we might have skipped over. As a matter of fact, when I read it, I, I, I started to, but I thank the Lord I had it highlighted in, in the Bible I was reading. He says, Father, the hour is come. Does anybody remember what he means when he says the hour is come. What were you saying, Chuck? That, yes, it's going to be involved in his departure from this world. Good. And what's he still got to go through before that happens? 
his crucifixion. God is going to be glorified. Now, I want you to, and, and, and by the way, I will show you. Nah, let's see, maybe I didn't put it up here. Um, yes, I did. Okay, we're talking about his crucifixion. Here are all the references, and I used this uh, years ago. I, by the way, I find that a very powerful painting of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's almost there. They're walking during this prayer. Maybe they've stopped along the way, I don't know. But they're walking toward the Garden of Gethsemane when he's praying this. Okay, that's what's going on. Here are all the references in the book of John alone where Jesus is talking about the hour. And, and now this is not the only time he mentions an hour, John, but this is specifically when he's talking about what we would call his passion. And his passion is his suffering and his death. And so this is the last reference to it in John where Jesus says the hour is come. Okay, it's, it's going to happen now. And he's talking then about his crucifixion. The hour has come. Then he says, glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. Now, in what way is Jesus going to be glorified going to the cross? Because it's a humiliating experience. It's a horrific experience. How will he be glorified? He is going to conquer death. His resurrection is going to prove. And so what Jesus is doing, and by the way, do we not praise him for, this for his death on the cross ever since? What Jesus is doing is he's looking beyond the suffering. Can I say that for those of you that are going through uh, suffering, and almost all of us at some level, right? One of the best things to do is to follow the example of Christ. And I'll show you a verse um, I, I, toward the end here where you look beyond the suffering to where you're headed. Okay? And that's what Jesus is doing. He's submitting to the cross, but he is saying, Father, glorify your Son. Glorify your Son. I'm going to go to the cross. His crucifixion is going to glorify the Lord. I want you to also notice, um, keep reading, that thy Son also may glorify thee. So Jesus is going to bring glory to God the Father as well through this experience. And he does. How does God the Father get glory at the cross? Uh, say it again, Tony. That's what Jesus said. Th through Jesus honoring the Father and his submission, that's very true. And I would submit something else, too. We all know... Yeah, go ahead, Joe. That is how God saved the world. Yes, God the Father really destroyed Satan's power over man through the sacrifice of his son. Thank God. God gets the glory. As, as Jesus is elevated, God the Father is elevated. Exactly right. So he gets glory... Also at man's salvation. Notice if you would verse 2. As thou hast given him, Jesus now speaking of himself, power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And you can see again, the members of the Trinity working together for salvation. God the Father choosing us before we chose him. Jesus Christ providing the way of salvation. The Holy Spirit calling us to, to himself. Verse 2. And this is life eternal that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. By the way, 
That is the gospel in a nutshell right there. You notice what he said life eternal is. It's not being a Baptist. It's not joining a church. It's not uh, going through the baptismal tank. This is life eternal that they might know thee. Jesus is talking about God the Father, that they might know you and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. It is a personal relationship with God that is eternal life. It is not um, uh, anything else. Don't substitute anything else. In him was life, John will say in, in John chapter 1, and the life was the light of men. In John chapter, uh, 1 John chapter 5, verse 12, he that has the Son has life. He that does not have the Son of God does not have life. Do you have Christ as your personal Savior? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? That's life eternal. We're glorified. Jesus, uh, God is glorified through Christ's crucifixion, through man's salvation. Uh, thirdly, through Christ's earthly ministry. He says, I have glorified thee on earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Well, that's quite a statement, isn't it? Everything you gave me to do, I've done it. Boy, I wish I could say that at the end of my life. I've finished the work you gave me to do. God is glorified through Christ's earthly ministry and also now through Christ's ascension. He says in verse 5, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. That's going to happen at his ascension when he ascended back into heaven. And um, so it, what a wonderful uh, uh, prayer this is, even just so far as he's praying for God to be glorified through the crucifixion, through the salvation of sinners. Even pointing out how he glorified him in his public ministry and is looking forward, again, looking beyond the cross at this point to heading back to heaven having the glory that he had before he came to this earth. That brings us to verse 6 through 19, which is his prayer for his disciples, um, the 11 who are still loyal to him. And let's notice, uh, first of all, uh, Jesus' relationship with him and, of course, God the Father's relationship with, with these men as well. Jesus says, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Manifested means I've revealed openly. I've, I've revealed your name, I've, your character, Father, to the men that you gave me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. They've been obedient. They've, they've followed me. They've, they've listened to what I've said. And now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. I've given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. Can I say how revolutionary what the disciples had come to believe was in that day? There was a very, the, the, the Old Testament scriptures had hinted at the Trinity, even from the very first chapter of the Bible, when God says, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let us make man. You find that similar statement in the uh, Tower of Babel when it says the, the Lord um, comes down. And, and, and he makes a statement again in the plural in Genesis chapter 11. Uh, there's, uh, I, uh, there's Psalm chapter 30, I think it's right around verse um, 6, where the, 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 in the proverb they say, uh, what is God's name? What is his son's name, if you can tell? 
But, um, and, and of course, uh, in, in, in the prophecies concerning the birth of the Messiah, unto us a child is, uh, is born, unto us a son is given, the government will be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So there were these, these hints of a trinity. The scripture talked about the Spirit of God in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And yet... Um, there was very little understanding of the Trinity in the Old Testament era. And so now the disciples have to come to believe, and they've, again, it's been up and down, but they've come to believe that Jesus is, in fact, not only the Messiah, but he is the Son of God. And they believe that. And that really is what's wrapped up in their relationship with him. They believe that thou hast sent me. Verse 9. Excuse me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now you'll notice, it's rather interesting, is it not? I pray for them. I do not pray for the world. Um, he's talking about the lost world, the world that's determined to reject him. And he's saying, I'm, but I am praying for my own. And what a privilege it is that we have the Son of God interceding for us even today. So we see that Jesus is talking to the Father about his relationship with um, the relationship of these disciples with him. And, and, and now in verse 11, he, he, uh, he brings up the ob an obvious truth, and that is the disciples are headed toward a very difficult situation. Verse 11. And now I am no longer, excuse me, and now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. That's a pretty scary thing. The disciples are going to be going on without the Lord. Jesus is going back to heaven. They're going to be uh, really by themselves. And that brings us then to some specific needs that they have. Verse 12. I'm sorry, I'm in the middle of verse 11. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one, even as we are. Okay, what's the first thing that Jesus is praying? He sees, he sees this need for his disciples now. We're talking about the, the 11 loyal ones. What's the first thing that he mentions that they need? They're going to need God's protection for, uh, for what specific issue? Very good, Judy. For unity. How many loyal disciples left? Eleven, right? Eleven different personalities. Any chance that they might fray? Might come into contact with each other? You get eleven guys in a room? You heard about that, didn't you? These two guys who were Baptists that got stranded on a deserted island. And they founded First and Second Baptist Church on the island. Yeah. You know, personalities. And Jesus is praying for unity. So he's asking God to guard their unity. That Judy's idea of protection is exactly right. Keep is the idea of protect. Protect them. That they may stay unified. That they won't fight against each other. That they won't let personality things come between them. Psalm 133, verse 1 says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. 
Unity is a very important uh, truth and a very important uh, and, and necessary uh, thing for God's work to go forward. Uh, Jesus is going to ask for something else. I won't put it up. I'll let you f- discover it. Verse 12, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition. Who's that? That's Judas, the son of destruction, unfortunately, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. And now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have, what's the next thing? My joy fulfilled in themselves. That's right. Jesus said, I want, Father, for my my disciples, grant them joy. You know, um, again, one of the things that, uh, it's hard. Ask my wife and, uh, and, and kids, uh, if we watch a Bible film, you know, um, you're, I'm always, the, 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 the antennas are always up. You know, are they going to be faithful to the Word of God? I mean, just the way it works. And sometimes they get frustrated with me. Oh, Dad, you're, you know. But um, uh, it's, it is important to stay faithful to the Word of God. And one of the things that, that sometimes bugs me, especially about, Hollywood's renditions of the life of Christ is they try to make Jesus out to be some very somber, um, never could smile or laugh individual, almost like a rebel against society. And that is just just downright false. Um, Let me show you a verse about Christ. It's very interesting. Psalm 45, verse 6 and 7. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Now, we know it's talking about Jesus because you'll notice he's got a kingdom and he's called God. So this is Christ. We're talking about Christ. Old Testament. Verse 7. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. I want you to think of that verse. He is saying that Jesus... Now, I understand Isaiah 53 says he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Okay, that's a picture of Jesus on the cross. What we're told here in Psalm 45 is that Jesus had more joy and gladness than his companions. If you had, would have been around him, he would be the most contagious personality that you have ever met. More joy, more peace. Love. That's why I just don't think we can imagine what these men are, are go, about to go through when they're going to lose him. We can't. But what gave him? Because verse 7 tells us, What gave him that great joy? Do you see it? It says you love righteousness and you hate wickedness. That, therefore, therefore means that's the connection. It is Jesus' love for righteousness and his hatred for evil that was the fuel behind his joy. And if you want to have Christ's joy, you're going to have to have have those two things. Why would God say that? 
One of the biggest things that weighs you and I down is the guilt and the fear and the uh, consequences from our own sin. And it is when you learn to love what is right and when you truly love it that you practice it and when you truly hate what is evil, you will find a huge burden being lifted off your heart. If you're just joining us, you you're listening to the Beacon of Hope broadcast, the ministry of Calkins Baptist Church. Many of them Church. seem to have a lot of joy. Now, back to the message. Have you noticed that? They'll run around and they'll play. Now, I know there could be personality differences, but they'll run around and play and have a great old time and, and can, can take some, you know, they don't have a toy around, they take something, a, a rock, whatever it is, and they, and, and they, and they make it into whatever. I would submit to you that we lose so much of our joy and peace because of our own sin and foolish choices. What Jesus is, what, what the Word of God is telling us here was the key to Jesus' joy. He loved righteousness and he hated wickedness. And so what you'll find in his righteous character is he's all about, as he expressed in the first five verses, glorifying God. And you know why he's praying for his disciples and then he'll pray for us? Because he's all about blessing other people. That's the righteous life. Glorifying God. Blessing other people. And hating wickedness keeps us from the traps that take away our joy and our peace. Jesus said to it, Jesus prayed, I'm, I'm praying that you might fulfill my joy in them. And that comes when you allow the Holy Spirit to give you Christ's hatred for sin and his love for doing right. He prays something else. And this goes from verse 14 down to verse 19, the end of this prayer for his disciples. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them. It's interesting, isn't it? Because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. Or you may, uh, the evil there uh, can also be translated the evil one. And that, I believe, is what's going on there. He's asking that God would, would keep us from, or, and keep them specifically from the evil one, from Satan and his attacks. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Now you see a couple of words that come up repeatedly in that section. As Jesus is, is, is praying, what do you see? The issue of sanctification, very good. And what's the other word? Truth. So Jesus is definitely praying that God would sanctify his disciples through the truth. Now, what does the word sanctify mean? Well, you see the Marine there in his dress blues. Okay, now, the dress blues, and of course, I remember Joe telling me, where's Joe, um, that you got a pair of dress blues after graduation. You were the only one that did at that time in your unit. Uh, they didn't just give them out. What's that? You were honor man of your platoon. Congratulations on that. 
But you know, you know what's interesting about that is I don't think Joe would have taken his new set of dress blues and gone out and played a tackle football in them. Uh, what is the purpose of having your dress blues, Joe? What do you use them for? Because you don't wear them every day. Right, They're, the dress blues are for special, very special occasions. Again, like a funeral, if you're going to meet the president, if you're going to meet some general, something along. They're for very special occasions. They're set apart. You don't just use them for anything. That's what the word sanctify means. It means to be set apart for a special use, and that special use is the glory of God, just like our Savior. What Jesus is saying Although the world hates this about the Christian, he is saying, Father, I want you to set them apart and use them. Now, he mentioned, first of all, that the world has a natural hatred for the follower of Christ. Lots of scriptures you could look at that and show that, but that's true. It's because they hate Jesus. And I'm not saying that every lost person feels that way, but the general tenor of this world is not positive toward Christ, and so therefore, if you identify with him, it's not positive toward you. And God sets us apart by our allegiance then to the truth. It is when we stand up for what is right. It is when we, when we say, okay, I love righteousness enough that, that, that I'm, I'm going to take this course of action. I'm going to witness to my friend or my neighbor, even though um, I'm not sure how it's going to go. It, it's, it's, it's hating evil. So when you're tempted to do something and maybe you have friends or relatives that want you to comply, uh, you say no. Because the bottom line is the wicked likes company. Here's some verses on this. This is Proverbs 11, verse 21. Though hand join in hand, the wicked shall not be unpunished, but the seed of the righteous shall be delivered. And so you'll find that, that although people like to be unified, almost like if enough of us are, are, are going to do our own thing, then certainly God's just going to have to bend to our way. That isn't the way it works with God. And the righteous know that. And when you hate wickedness and you won't go along with whatever the lifestyle is, whatever the lifestyle choice is, it's not a popular thing and it causes conflict. Here's Romans 1 and verse 28. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God that gave them over to a debased mind to do uh, the things which are not fitting. And, and he goes into a number of a list, but I want you just to notice then verse 32, who knowing the judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but approve of those who practice them. Wickedness, they, they want company. And when the Christian says no, I remember years ago, I was uh, working on the back of the garbage truck, and uh, uh, I got off at a stop. It was a very hot summer day. I was just a you know college age at the time, and the guy came out and he offered me uh, a beer. He said, "You're hot, you know. Would you like a beer?" And I, I wasn't unkind at all. I don't know the guy. The first time I ever saw him, last time I ever saw him, as far as I know, I just said, "No, thank you." He was kind of angry about that. I, don't, I said, no, thank you, I don't drink. 
It's amazing how if you don't comply, sometimes people don't like that. But Jesus went on and he prayed for all of us. And so let's notice, what did he pray? And the first section, verse 20 to 23, I think it's going to be, it's going to be obvious to you what he prayed for. But let's notice it. Verse 20 to 23, what did Jesus pray for you and I? Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. What did he pray for? He prayed for unity, that they may be one. Now I'm going to talk in just a few moments about what Christian unity is and what it is not. But can I say that Jesus made this one, his first priority when he's praying for the church down through the centuries. That's interesting, isn't it? Now, we're going to have to take some time to think about that. But what is the big deal about unity? Well, first of all, it reflects God's nature. Go back with me and look at verse 20 where we, uh, 21 where we started this. That they may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee. Jesus is saying, I want them to reflect our harmony between himself and God the Father. Wow. Now, he mentions something else. Uh, see if you can pick this one out. You'll find it um, in verse 23. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me. So what is the second reason why Jesus is praying for unity among his people? Exactly. Yeah, Mike is saying that the world will know that Jesus came to save them, right? Mike, is that what I'm saying? Is that what you're saying? That's right. What were you saying, Mark? It would reveal Jesus. That's exactly right. And what about him? That he is he's God. Reveal his deity. Because he says that they may know that thou hast sent me. If you realize that Jesus came from God, you know who he is. Jesus is saying that when Christians can live together and dwell together in unity and harmony, they are, they are, they are giving testimony of who I am. Now, I want you to think of the opposite of this. What happens when, when Christians badmouth each other in, among unsaved people? What does that do? What does it do? It does, it makes them not want, want to be like exactly. They say there's a bunch of hypocrites down there. Can I put it to you this way? We learned a rule growing up. You probably, many of you probably learned the same thing as a family. Those of you who had a fairly large family. We had five kids. And it was like this. You can fight amongst each other when you're in, when you're, when you're in your household, but when you go out in public, you are together. You don't undermine your brother or sister. You don't badmouth your brother or sister. Some of you had that rule growing up. That's a good rule for Christians too. It's one thing to talk about 
uh, things you disagree with amongst each other. Now, I'm not talking about gossiping behind other people's back. I'm talking about directly to that person. But how woe be to the person that is criticizing a fellow Christian out there in the community. That is just a wicked thing, and it needs to be repented of. It's evil. Because what you're doing is you're undermining Jesus Christ. One of the things that brings glory to God is when Christians have harmony and love each other. It is how we show the world that Jesus is real. There's a third reason. You find at the end of verse 23, it says that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. So what's he saying there? It's how we realize, how we demonstrate God's love for his people. You've loved them as you love me. Boy, it seems like unity was a big deal to Jesus. Let's go on to verse 24. He's praying for something else. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. Now, where's he headed? Where's he headed? Heaven. That's right. He said, I want, I want my followers to be with me one day, that they may behold my glory. That's, we're not going to see it on this earth. We'll see it in heaven. Which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. What's he praying for? He's praying for heavenly joy, that we will be with him one day. And your, your security as a believer is not based on your performance, thank the Lord, any more than I'd want it based on my performance. It's based upon the love and loyalty of Jesus Christ to us. He is praying that we'll be with him. And he's got one more thing he's praying for. Verse 25, O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee. And these have known that thou hast sent me, and I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it. Now here's his reason that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. So what's he praying for? He's praying for God's love to permeate our hearts. That God's love would fill us in our hearts and minds. Now let me hasten to some conclusions. Uh, we need to talk, wrap up a few things up, maybe some questions in your mind. Number one, Jesus is constantly thinking of glorifying God and blessing other people. Do you notice that? That's the righteous life. That's the righteous life. He loves righteousness. Jesus looks beyond his suffering to God's glory and our salvation. I told you I'd give you a verse. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down on the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus looked beyond the cross to us being saved and forgiven, being with him in heaven, uh, the, the, what God's plan being accomplished. He looked beyond the cross to that. I would encourage you when you're in times of great suffering to look beyond where you're at. Look where you're headed. Number three, Jesus is about the work God has called him to do. It's astounding to me what he's done, even in these last few moments. 
as he's been, as he's been uh, instituting the Lord's Supper, identifying Judas as the betrayer, washing the disciples' feet, telling them how they're going to love each other, gave all that, that teaching from verse, uh, chapter 13 through chapter 16. Now he's prayed. Now he's headed to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to pour out his heart to God for uh, a matter of uh, a few minutes or hours. I don't know how long he'll be there. And then he'll be arrested, and the whole crucifixion is going to take place. He's worked and worked and worked to the very moment where he laid down his life for our sins. He's not taking a nap before he moves forward. He's not taking a vacation He's all about the work of God here. You'll notice, fourthly, Jesus prayed you would be unified with other believers and sanctified through the truth and convinced of God's love for you. Now let me go back to unity because we have to understand what unity is not and then what unity is. Because I think this is just a huge issue. Number one, unity is not universal agreement. does not mean we have to all uh, see exactly the same things in the scriptures. I would like you to go with me to Philippians chapter 3. You can leave John behind. just want to show you a couple scriptures as we wrap this up. Verse 15 and 16. He says, "Therefore, Let us therefore as many as be perfect or mature be thus minded. And if in anything you be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereunto we have already attained... Let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. There's going to be different maturity levels of the Christian family, even in a church. And by the way, I think that's a healthy thing. Sometimes people say, well, I came into a church and someone wasn't friendly. Can I just say, if everybody was mature and everybody was friendly, where's the outreach? If everybody was perfect and scrubbed clean, that's not what you want. You want a place where, where people can come to get help. And guess what? People that need help aren't perfect people. And guess what? Mature Christians aren't perfect people. So don't look for a church where there's never anything that goes on that's wrong. Hopefully we deal with things. But you can't expect the, there to be perfection. It's not going to happen. What's he saying? Okay, where, where you have... Where you have commonality and understanding okay walk by those 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 commonalities it's not going to be universal agreement it's not that we're all going to see everything the same in the scriptures it doesn't mean acceptance of all who claim to be christians the scriptures are full of warnings against false prophets let me just take you to one of them it's it's at the end of your bible all the way back to the second to last book so you got revelation and then in front of Revelation is a tiny book of Jude. It's only one chapter. So if you find the back of your Bible with Revelation and then the book right in front of it, I'm in Jude chapter 1, the only chapter of it, in verse 3 and 4. Jude writes this, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to, to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who before of old ordained to this condemnation ungodly men, turning the grace of our, of our God into lasciviousness and denying our Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he said they crept in on the wares. You know what he means? These were people that lied, people that pretended to be Christians, and they were not, and they started teaching false doctrine. Remember how Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, another reference I have up there, beware of, of wolves in sheep's clothing? False prophets. 
Christian unity is not anybody who claims to be a Christian, we have to agree with them, get along with them. There are false prophets that need to be identified and need to be cast out of the flock. So Christian unity is not that we all have to be robots and think exactly the same thing. But the basic doctrines better be there. And that's why in a church like ours, we have a doctrinal statement. We say, okay, it doesn't mean that, that everybody has to see everything the same way to be a Christian, but here's what we believe on, on some of the major issues that we're going to stand for. But you better have Jesus Christ right. You better have the fact that you're a sinner uh, uh, not deserving of heaven right. You better have, you better have the, the fact of the Trinity right. You better have certain basics that have to be there. And so we may disagree on mode of baptism, some other things, but, but the bottom line, and we'll have churches that are going to reflect that, but the bottom line is Christians ought not to be shooting at each other if they're genuinely born again. Let's talk about what Christian unity is, and I'm just going to give you one statement on it. Christian unity is the fruit of genuine believers who allow the Holy Spirit to produce the attitudes of humility and patient toward their fellow believers. And I do want to take these two, ver- these two passages and, and, and close it out. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. I want you to look with me at verses 1 to 3. And for time's sake, I'm just going to read them. So if you can catch up, that's great. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Now, well, here's what he's saying. Walk worthy of the fact that you're called to be a Christian. How do you do that? Verse 2. With all lowliness and meekness. What is lowliness and meekness? Two ways you can express what? Humility. With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Now, long-suffering and forbearance are two aspects of patience with people. He's saying this, be humble and be patient with others. Why? Verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Can I tell you that much of the, the, the fracturing of, of good and godly people is over personality and it's over pride? It really is. It's a wicked thing. And if we just would back off trying to think, I've got to have my honor, and back off trying to think, I've got to have it my way and listen to each other and be forbearing with each other, there'd be a lot more unity in the, in the, in, among the children of God. Let me show you the other passage, James chapter 4. It's a lengthy one, but you need to see it. James is back toward the back of your Bible. You'll find Hebrews, it's right beyond that. James chapter 4, I'm going to start at verse 1. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Okay, where did these fights, these wars come from? Come they not hence even of your lusts that warn your members. The idea of lust there are desires for evil that warn your members. Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight in war that ye have not because ye ask not. Can I say this? James is not writing this to lost people. He's writing this to save people who have suffered for their faith. These are some godly people. They were in the church in Jerusalem. They've had to leave their homeland because of persecution. They've they've lost about everything for their faith in Christ. And yet they, these godly people, were fighting amongst each other. 
Why? Because of their desires. I want to be first. I want my way. Verse 3. You ask and receive not. Well, notice at the end of verse 2, he says, you have not because you ask not. He says, some of you aren't even praying about your situation. But now verse 3, he said, you ask and receive not because you ask amiss or you ask badly that you may consume it upon your lusts. Some of you are praying, but you're praying for your way. You're not praying for God's way, whatever His will is. You just want your way. Notice what James calls them, adulterers and adulteresses. That's a very strong word. He is saying, you are being disloyal to your Savior. Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think that the Scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth the envy? The spirit, that's the, I believe, is the Holy Spirit there that's dwelling within us is jealous of our affections. He wants us to love Him supremely, not ourselves. But He giveth more grace, wherefore He saith, notice it, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. I want my way. I want to, uh, God resists that. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Notice it. Speak not evil one of another, brethren. Wow, what an incredible prayer. Is it not amazing to consider that Jesus, while walking toward the Garden of Gethsemane, the place where he knew he would be betrayed by Judas and arrested by soldiers from his own nation, still found time to pray? On top of that, is it not marvelous to ponder that Jesus did not merely pray for the people he knew and loved in his lifetime, but for his future followers as well? Considering the fact that Jesus prayed for his future disciples leads us to an interesting question. Did Jesus pray for you? That is, have you become a follower of Jesus Christ? You may be asking yourself, how can I become Jesus' follower? That is one of the most important questions you can ever ask yourself, so please allow me a few moments to answer this one. To become Jesus' disciple, you must first understand that you're a sinner undeserving of God's favor. I know that this must sound strange to some of you because tragically, most people believe they are intrinsically good and deserving of God's goodness. They think that merely believing in God makes them a child of God prepared for heaven. Yet far too many have never read James 2.19, which says, You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. In fact, in this passage, James informs us that saying one has faith without the changed life that Christ produces has neither true faith nor genuine salvation. Others are convinced that no matter what religious system one holds, as long as one lives a righteous life, he is on his way to heaven. Again, the Bible teaches exactly the opposite. Psalms 53, 2 and 3 states, God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. Every one of them is turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. This means that none of us is righteous before God on his own. Please consider the following scenario. Let's imagine a new camera that had the ability to record and digitize a person's every thought, word, and deed. Then imagine, without your prior knowledge, someone attached one of these cameras to your person. So for an entire week, your life, your every thought, word, and action were recorded and placed in a format with video and sound. Would any of us agree to have a single week of that video of our unfiltered lives shown publicly? The statement in Psalm 53.3 rings true. 
Every one of them is turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. Still others think that merely assenting to the facts surrounding the life and ministry of Jesus makes them one of Christ's followers. Yet James' argument about demons believing in God holds for this point as well. Does not even Satan himself know that Jesus Christ died for man's sins, was buried, and rose again from the dead? He certainly does. Thus, genuine repentance for sin, which Satan has never done, is essential for salvation. As Christ said in Luke 13.3, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Second, to become a disciple of Christ, one must come to believe that your sin is so great that condemns you under the eternal and just wrath of God. Again, this is shocking to most today, but listen to the words of Jesus himself in a conversation our Lord had with a very sincere and religious rabbi named Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In John 3.36, the prophet John the Baptist clearly stated where those who will not enter God's kingdom are doomed to go. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Third, you must understand that God's Son, Jesus, came to this world, became a man, and died on the cross to pay God's just penalty for all your sins. Scriptures written hundreds of years before Christ predicted Jesus' birth, death for our sins, burial, and resurrection from the dead. Thus, each one of these events was not invented by crazed followers of Jesus after his death, but were literal fulfillments of well-documented prophecies of the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. Fourth, if you truly believe these truths about Christ and you wish to turn from your sinful life and become a follower of Jesus, you can by faith call out to him and ask him to make you his child. There are no magic words that will save you, but if you want Jesus to save you, you can call out to him by faith and he will hear your prayer. Romans 10, 9, and 10 provide God's promise to all who will come to him in true repentance and faith, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Do you want to become a disciple of Jesus? If you want to turn from your sins, give your heart and life to Christ, and become one of his followers, you can ask him to save you and make you his child right now. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening. Mine but to believe and recognize his work of love and Christ receive for me. Free.